Matthew 20. You turn your Bibles, Matthew 20, we'll look this morning at verses 17 to 28. Matthew 20. There's probably no country in the world so success-oriented as the United States. We even have a name for it. We call it the American Dream. That belief, belief that anyone, regardless of who they are or where they came from, can attain success here upward mobility and prosperity so that their life will be better, fuller, more satisfying, and especially more prosperous and free than if they lived elsewhere. Without doubt, that's the personal experience of many, many people in our land, many of us, perhaps. But in our text today, we encounter a different kind of success one that frankly looks like failure. I'm talking about the model Jesus set before us, a pattern still pursued by faithful believers everywhere. Let's read about it. Matthew 20, beginning with verse 17. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be, be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Three truths to consider from this passage. The first is this. Simply, Jesus gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us. You know, we often think if we only knew what the future holds, we could plan accordingly. We could avoid pain and suffering and prepare for every disaster that we were all ready to go. But the first thing we see in our text this morning is that Jesus did see the cross coming. 
that truth makes the rest of this text very powerful. Specifically, Jesus knew what was about to happen. That's what we just heard Jesus saying. We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's him, will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew that what the prophet Isaiah foretold concerning him was true. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. He knew what was coming. It was also what Psalm 22 predicted, words that Jesus had sung in worship in the synagogue many times, I'm sure, knowing that they would someday be his words from the cross. The passage that starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And later says, I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Jesus knew. Still with his eyes wide open, he pressed toward Jerusalem, knowing what it would cost for him to give himself for you and for me. Jesus also knew why these things had to happen. Later in our text, Jesus mentions the cup he was about to drink. It's not obvious that his disciples really understood what that meant, but clearly Jesus knew what it meant. Drinking this cup was an Old Testament word picture of someone incurring God's judgment. Psalm 75 explains it pretty well. Quote, it is God who judges, who brings one down and exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. In Jeremiah 25, the Lord spends half the chapter describing his judgment on Israel who had abandoned him and forsaken him. And, and he, he, he describes it in terms of drinking this cup of wrath. Here's a sample of what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Drink, get drunk and vomit. Fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. You see, when Jesus described his future, in terms of drinking this bitter cup of God's wrath, there was no question what he was talking about. Jesus was describing giving himself for us, taking our punishment on himself, having God's wrath against our sin poured out on him. But he didn't need word pictures to describe how he would give his life for us. In verse 28, Jesus said it plainly, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom 
for many. This morning, I set before you the love of the Lord Jesus. He was not tricked into taking our punishment. He didn't just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He gave his life. He made himself the ransom paid in our place. He could not have said it more plainly than he said it in John 10. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus, knowing full well what was coming and why it was coming, marched straight toward Jerusalem where he knew he would give up his life for us. Aren't you glad he doesn't expect that kind of sacrifice from you? Hold on a minute. There's a second point to consider. Jesus expects us to give ourselves away. Jesus expects us to give ourselves away. Did you ever do something really stupid, something that would be an embarrassment to you for years to come? I tried to think of an example in my own life, but there were so many I just quit. <laughs> that must be how James and John felt this day. Matthew doesn't name them, but we know who they are, James and John. It began looking very innocent. James and John and their mother, these aren't little boys, these are grown men, and their mother came to Jesus with the request. Now, you don't probably know this, but I, uh, what I understand from studying and hearing other people's opinions, the mother was probably the woman named Salome who was Jesus' mother's sister, Aunt Salome. That means that James and John are Jesus' first cousins. So here comes Aunt Salome and James and John, my cousins, to talk to me. And they had such a humble favor to ask. Could my sons, James and John, please have the highest two positions one on each side of your throne when your kingdom is established. Oh, mom may have been doing the talking, but the boys were in on it because when Jesus answers, he says, you, plural. <laughs> he knows they're involved. But can you believe this? This is opportunism at its worst quietly trying to use the family connection to gain advantage and high position. But it's more than opportunism. It's presumption at its worst. Jesus is talking about going to be crucified. And you're obsessed with gaining power. Really? Uh, but just a caution, before you condemn their devious conniving, you might examine your own motives. 
because we are all pretty hardwired to be self-centered. So not surprisingly, in verse 24, we learn that the other 10 disciples were indignant. And notice they weren't embarrassed for their friends, James and John, making fools of themselves. They were indignant about James and John seeking the top positions. Why would they be indignant rather than sympathetic toward their friend's embarrassment? They were undoubtedly indignant because they had the same selfish ambitions and they saw their friends trying to outmaneuver them, trying to gain an advantage in the power structure of the kingdom. So in Jesus' response, he taught them some things about how things would work in his kingdom. Two things, the second one first. Jesus explained what greatness means in his kingdom. We all know what greatness looks like in the world. It's measured by how much money you make. We hear running total almost every day in the news somewhere of who's now the richest person, who's gaining ground as the richest It's measured by how far up the corporate ladder you climb. It means largely how many people work for you, obey your orders, serve your needs, clean up your messes. But Jesus says my kingdom has a different standard of greatness. It's measured by how quick you are to serve, not to seize power. It's measured by how many people you serve and how low you are willing to go to serve someone else. These things are very real in Christ's kingdom. If you want to rise to power, the way up is down. You need to start serving others. If you want to be the leader, Jesus says, you need to make yourself the slave. We cannot emphasize how radically different this is from the world's ways. This is part of the great principle of reversal that we find whenever Jesus is talking about his kingdom. The first will be last, and the last will be first. If you want to save your life, if you want to hold on to your life and savor your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, if you give your life away for my sake, you'll find it, you'll save it, it'll be worth something. Folks, that's still the rule of Christ's kingdom. Though churches have largely adopted the patterns and power structures of the world, unfortunately, Christ Jesus has not changed his design, not one bit. We know this because God's word tells us so. In Philippians 2, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave. Jesus expects us to give ourselves away to each other. Then Jesus also challenged James and John concerning their commitment 
In response to their request for the ranking position, Jesus challenged them and said, well, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Now, though those two said, no problem, we can do that. <laughs> the truth is no one could ever take someone else's judgment as Jesus did. But Jesus demands that we be willing to walk down the same road that leads to death. In other words, to be great in Jesus' kingdom, we must do what Jesus does. Humble ourselves to the point of death and willingly share the bitterness of other people's sins. So Jesus tells them, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. You see, these disciples saw only power and prestige. Jesus saw the suffering that was coming. Not just for him, but for them. And sure enough, it came. We know it came from to Jesus crucified. But in Acts 12, we hear that James, James, was the first of his apostles to be killed for his faith. And John, though he lived longer than the others, he lived a life largely exiled, cut off from people on a remote island. Folks, the principle has not changed today. We're called to humble ourselves like Jesus did, to take the lowly place of a servant as he did, and to suffer and die like Christ if necessary. Jesus expects us to give ourselves away like Jesus did. So why on earth would anybody adopt such an upside-down system in which you become nothing to be great? A life of selfless service accompanied by suffering, sometimes to the point of dying, that's not very inviting, I don't think. Why would Jesus choose that? Why would we follow him down that road? That brings us to our third point. Suffering with Jesus leads to glory. Suffering with Jesus leads to glory. We see a lot of pointless suffering in the world. The waste of human lives. And we're rightly disgusted when we see that. But Jesus' suffering, indeed our participation with him in it, is never pointless or wasted. It may appear to the world to be wasted, but by faith, by the truth of God's word, we see beyond the present. We see that suffering with Christ leads to glory with Christ. Jesus' suffering was certainly not a defeat. In verse 19, he predicted that not only would he be crucified, but he would rise from the dead. By that resurrection, the new age was begun. Victory was assured. His kingdom began with certainty. And after the resurrection, he ascended into heaven, was exalted at the Father's right hand, and was given dominion over everything. Jesus' suffering led to glory. Glory way beyond what we can comprehend. Oh, the world considered Jesus' suffering and death to be a wasted life at best. But Hebrews 12 tells us that he endured all of that with its pain and with its shame for the joy 
of bringing many with him into glory. So now Jesus calls us to humble ourselves, to lay aside self, to serve rather than be served, to give our lives rather than to try to save them, to drink the cup of bitter suffering when necessary. But this is the opposite of wasting our life. This is a path to glory with Jesus. Paul understood that. In 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about the struggle. He talks about his suffering. He talks about his life. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side. We're not crushed yet. We're perplexed. We're not in despair, though. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. Paul struggled. Paul knew about giving himself away. He knew about the stop of the, the, the pain. A few verses later, Paul puts it all in perspective, though. He goes on, though outwardly, we're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed every day. For our light and momentary troubles, <laughs> being stoned and left for dead, being shipwrecked, being hungry, rotting in jail, those things, our light and momentary troubles <laughs> are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Suffering with Jesus during this brief life leads to glory with Jesus forever. This morning I call you to that kind of radical discipleship to give up everything, including your life and safety, to serve Christ. But I don't do that asking you to throw away your life. Rather, I ask you to invest it in something worthwhile, and that is the kingdom of God, Christ's holy kingdom. Our text never mentions the word success. Indeed, there's no evidence that Jesus ever cared or pursued the kind of success that we call the American dream. Does that mean he was a failure? Oh, no. But clearly, Jesus was pursuing something categorically different than our world. And that's the Christian dream, which ought to also drive us. First, recognizing that Jesus abandoned the pleasures of this world to give himself for us. And then being determined to be faithful, like him, to give ourselves to one another. And finally, being fearless in the face of suffering, knowing that sharing Jesus' suffering leads to eternal glory. May God etch those truths in our souls.